please help me welcome our first author, Sealed Jew. Thank you. I'm actually going to read last, so, <laughs> but that's okay. But I'll introduce the first author, um, Jim Ruland, also known as Jim Berman on social media, and author of The Forest of Fortune and many other books. Um, all right, go ahead. <laughs> Thank you very much, Theo, for inviting me to read here. I'm going to read something extremely short. It's a couple pages here, but the font's really big because I'm old. And uh, the piece I'm going to read is inspired uh, when I, a lot of people here know about my adventures as an amateur cat sitter uh, in the Los Angeles area. And one of those first experiences was right down the street uh, two blocks or a block and a half down Russell and so that being there kind of inspired uh, this scene here um, although there's a character and her name is Melanie and she's going on a blind date uh, there's no real story uh, or even really a scene I just thought I'd write about some uh, make-believe ice cream because it goes so well with cake so um, congratulations, Seal, on your book, and thank you for not writing about kale. <laughs> this is called Evil Dave's Black Sunday. For a second date, Melanie chose a restaurant closer to her home in a neighborhood with which she was familiar. She wanted to feel more at ease, remote from the discomfort that came with meeting someone she didn't know in a place she'd never been before. She picked Evil Dave's Diner, a place that had become popular because its proprietor was a tattoo artist who'd made a name for himself on a reality show. People kept coming back because it was neither kitschy nor slick, modern nor retro. It was just a place that stayed open late, served quality coffee and generous portions, and the food, though bad for you, didn't suck. In other words, an ordinary diner, with one exception. It had an ice cream dish with a cult following. Evil Dave's Black Sunday comprised 16 scoops of handmade ice cream created with dark Mexican chocolate, dusted with ground chili powder made from black peppers grown in Valle de Lucifero in Durango, Mexico, and harvested by a curando in Echo Park, Sorry, Curandero in Echo Park, a random botanica devoted to Muerto Negro, patron deity of narcotraficantos. The cream was cultivated from a virgin cow that was slaughtered during a full moon ceremony, <laughs> and whose butchered carcass resulted in an uptick in chupacabra sightings. The chocolate devil sauce was a house secret that Evil Dave had obtained from a Tarahumara shaman who entrusted the tattooer with illustrating his body with elaborate symbols of ancient origin and had shared the recipe with him on his deathbed. An event that those close to Evil Dave said changed his spiritual outlook. The Sunday was reported to have hallucinatory qualities if taken in excess, which was impossible to avoid if less than eight people polished off the dessert. 
the devil sauce was known to bestow the imbiber with a kind of second sight. The Sunday was crowned not with a cherry, but with a gummy eyeball <laughs> filled with a translucent cream that spurted when bitten into and left a sweet, but not too sweet, taste that baffled even seasoned food critics. A circle of devotees sprang up around the Sunday and gathered for a black mess in the enclosed garden behind the diner to gorge on the powerful Sundays in an effort to cultivate visions. Initiates were known to one another by a tattoo administered by Evil Dave himself that featured an all-seeing eye atop an otherwise innocuous-looking Sunday. Thank you. Hello. Um, hi. <laughs> um, so I'm Janice. Um, congratulations on your book. I'm excited to be here. Um, so I'm going to read a little bit. Um, so when CL asked us to read about LA, I thought, well, I have a whole book of essays about LA, actually. Um, so the, these are sort of essays in fragments, and they're written all over the Southern California area and in other places also. Um, but this one is from an essay called Los Angeles, and I'm going to read some fragments from it. Um, and that is all I will say. Look at the sky, I say. I don't see anything, you say. In this place, it is possible to be surrounded by everyone and to be completely alone. In this place, it is possible to simultaneously feel the effect of urban grunge and filth and beauty, garbage and grime in every alleyway, that smell of shellfish, that look that people give you when stopped at an intersection, to feel all of that alongside a legendary hyphen, the reciprocity of nature, of trees, of dirt, of birds, of air. One of the greatest things is how many views there are of the city from within the city. You can drive to numerous points, hike up to numerous vistas, every view of the city completely different, differing psychological standpoints, differing hierarchies of places, the growth and manifestation of a strange perspective of a city that you occupy, pendunculated beaks of birds that call behind you. Seen from the window of your car, the city is a fascinating series of reflections. Silence doesn't exist except for when you turn up the volume on your radio, and then the clusters of the city that reproduce everyone's gazes fixed upon something, misty haze or smog that remains invisible yet manages to cloud everyone's visions. His acts and omissions, her acknowledgement, his fixed wound, her tears, his responsibility, her burden, his inspiration, her escape. Some nights I say something about something happening somewhere in the world. You sound just like my mom, you say. It is ending, I say. No, it's not, you say. Yes, it is. 
LA is a moving city, or an immensely fixed one in which we move through quickly, slowly, meandering, zigzagging on the same routes on new ones. What the city looks like is what it looks like when I'm stuck in traffic, when I'm speeding down the highway, when I'm focused on being somewhere on time. That is what the city looks like, threads that exist as paradoxical impressions, transparent, immense, blurred, tattooed over eyelids. The thickness of the air, though, that noisy silence that you can only sit in when you are still, this is the opportune and irreducible moment of being in this city. Yes, the standard logic and majority image of LA dictates a moving landscape, the trembling half-existence of relentlessly running around, constantly driving, the view of palm trees and buildings and other streets from your car, the receding day, the sunset in your rearview mirror, the approaching deadline that, tangif that tangifies time, the music, the outbreaks, the intention of space that is only felt when moving through it, but LA sits differently only when you are still, when you try to take a snapshot and live inside it, and for a moment the city doesn't exist at all. It is just you and the space and the sky, just you and the air and the heat and the breath. Let's just say that when you stretch out the transparent layers of the city, it becomes a confession. The confession isn't the desire for death, though there is that too, but that you miss your mother. The sun and the heat become irrelevant until you go outside to confront the light. But in the light, there is mother, there is that untraceable wound that began with birth. The city changes when you do, and the confession is that each and every gesture becomes filled with uncertainty. The city is so certain of itself, but it confesses that it knows nothing when there is the sky. It's a matter of taking a few steps back to trace the wound back to the light, the light a frantic ghost. Not every panorama is an equal snapshot of the city, yet in the end they are all the same, confessing. It rained once a thoughtless nod to the wound of the city. Here's the real dilemma, that so many moments in the city are inarticulatable. My confession is that I try relentlessly and hopelessly to capture moments via images and words. This is all a futile exercise. All of this only ends in failure, but sometimes inarticulation becomes articulation. That is, the photo I try to take, the one that captures none of the essence that I felt in that very moment when I looked up at the sky and wanted to cry and could have died right there, that the photo instead becomes the articulation of that inarticulatable moment in a way that the evidence can only be a frantic ghost to a wound, a relinquishing of everything into a concentration of something. It is all terrifying. One day the city will swallow me whole and no one, not even the pigeons, will notice. Thank you. Okay. Hi. Um, I'm the outlier because I'm going to read about Orange County, <laughs> about Newport Beach. Congratulations, Seal. I'm really happy to be a part of your book launch. And mine is even shorter than the first, um, Jim's, and it, it was lovely to hear you both read. Thank you. Um, it, this is from my, for my story collection, Drift, and um, it's from the point of view of a male waiter, and his, the hostess is uh, also male who is uh, infatuated with him, um, or in lust with him, and it's called Remoras, and it's Newport Beach. Um, they're going to a party. 
or they're leaving a party. I sat in the back seat of Whitey Smith's son's Mercedes with his girlfriend. She wore a black halter top cropped below her breast, black leather pants, and a ring with a diamond the size of a dime, although not on her ring finger. When she got out of the car, I made out the beginnings of a sun tattoo on her lower back reaching down, I imagined, to her ass. The dad's house was modern and ugly at the end of Narcissus along the ocean on the crest of a cliff, all metal and glass. The sun buzzed a series of alarms, fingers tapping at the numbers of the final alarm, but it kept buzzing us out. Too high to remember the code, he pulled out his soft leather wallet. God, it was beautiful. And all the cards, scraps of paper, and money fluttered to the sidewalk. He found the piece of paper with his alarm code, and his girlfriend gave me a look like, what an ass, but do you see his house? That was the most she acknowledged me all night. He was still working on getting us inside the house when a whooshing noise swept past us and a chill ran up the back of my neck, tingling at my scalp like it was a ghost or something. But it was only a skateboarder, crouched low, shirtless, his long hair flapping behind him. I wasn't the only one he'd frightened because Whitey Smith's son completely overreacted, yelling, watch it, fucking cunt. But the skateboarder didn't even flinch like he was deaf or didn't care, and we all watched him until he disappeared into the night. We went for a jacuzzi, the thing heated up fast, extended over the cliff like it was floating in the middle of the sky. Everyone stripped, but I kept my boxers on, the water bubbling through the material. I felt weightless, looking up at the stars, waves crashing below. My toes moved around the domed surface of a light at the bottom of the jacuzzi. And then Jim said, nice boy's hiding his cock because it's so big it would blow us all away. The truth, I didn't want Jim to see me naked, as if my body would reveal my sexual ambivalence. I didn't care about the others. The girlfriend was getting bleary, her head knocking to one shoulder and then bobbing up again only to knock to the other side. I need to lie down, she confessed, slurring, and we helped her inside, dripping water all over the floor since no one had thought to bring towels. I got a good look at her sun tattoo. Also, below her hip bones, she had double cherry tattoos, as if between the cherries was a jackpot. Thank you. Thanks for coming, everyone. And thank you for reading with me, Jim, Victoria, Janice. Uh, Check out their books. They're really good. I am going to read the beginning of a story called Easy Target. It happened the summer I joined Match.com. I had written a fairly normal profile, but at the end, tacked on that I wasn't necessarily looking for anything serious, I just wanted someone to make out with. It had been a year and a half since I'd moved back to Los Angeles after college, and I was still that lonely. Predictably, my inbox was always full, mostly with graphic notes pecked out with one hand, which gratified me in a bitter but thrilling way. In comparison, Sam's initial email was sedate, courteous. We both liked modest mouse. His profile said he was 29 and 6 foot 3 and showed a decent looking guy with a conservative haircut, the kind you might see in a men's warehouse ad. He sent me a link to a story in the Daily Bruin about UCLA medical students who'd built Habitat for Humanity houses in South LA. He was in the picture, 
smiling, in a construction helmet with his classmates. He said he was going to become an army doctor. Does this mean you might go to Iraq, I wrote. It's possible, he wrote back. Are you a Republican, I asked. <laughs> Not even, he said. We started up a playful correspondence, writing a few times a day. His missives were always smart and somewhat jocular. Then on the fourth day, he sent me another link. To give you a better sense of who I am, he wrote. The link took me to a profile on a nudist website. The photo showed a naked man from the back, alone at a beach, running into an ocean that looked turbulent and cold. I felt annoyed and cheated, but also had the weary sense that I'd more or less expected this, that there was an inevitability to his revelation I'd almost foreseen. And I was curious, too. Complimented, like maybe he'd appreciated something open and daring in me that I hadn't yet noticed in myself. The site was set up exactly like MySpace. I squinted at the thumbnails of his top eight nudists, his criteria for the kinds of new friends he was looking for, his glowing descriptions of his own body, including proud measurements of his penis. <laughs> Near the bottom of his profile, he had a paragraph warning others about fakers and posers who talked a big game online but never materialized in real life. Until then, I'd thought that nudists weren't necessarily sexual thrill-seekers, that they were essentially old, fat hippies who liked sunbathing naked. But Sam's profile read exactly as a casual sex want ad. I wrote him as much. There are different kinds of nudists, he wrote back. Just to be clear, this isn't my kind of thing, I wrote him. And this website, it seems really time-consuming. <laughs> That's okay, he wrote. I really was just letting you know something about me. I enjoy our emails. I couldn't decide whether he was just a normal guy going one step above a Craigslist ad uh, or a sexual deviant. I asked him how he'd gotten into this. I asked about his family, friends, other signs of normalcy. He said his parents were in Florida and he saw them a couple times a year. He was an only child. As a senior in college, he and a few buddies had gotten into the habit of going to strip clubs regularly, becoming friends with some of the dancers, both the determined ones that danced to, play for to pay for college and the ones that did it for coke. Then he wrote, all this might be easier to discuss in person. <laughs> I agreed apprehensively. We made plans to meet that weekend for drinks at a bar I picked out. But when I woke up the next day, another email was waiting for me. Option for Saturday, said the subject. He had forwarded an evite to a party for swingers in their 20s and 30s. It was cocktail party themed. $10 cover for men, free for women. At a private home in Eagle Rock. Couples and single women were welcome, but single men were not. Clearly, this was why Sam was trying to rope me in. At the bottom of the evite were a dozen or so guidelines to ensure all activities were consensual. Advice of the ask before you touch and it's okay to say no variety. Later in the evening, when I emailed back with my number, Sam called immediately. I mean, it sounds like we could just hang out and watch, he said. 
His voice was exactly as I'd imagined from his emails, friendly and amused, laying out his argument with a strategic playfulness, like he was building an elaborate Lego tower. He said he'd never been to the group's events. A friend from his nudist website had just forwarded it to him. What if everyone's ugly, I said. <laughs> Aren't you curious, he said. I had to admit that I was. He suggested we still get a drink at the bar first to get to know each other, but I drank a couple glasses of wine as I was getting ready to calm my nerves and was tipsy when he arrived. You look fantastic, he said when I opened the door. I had put on a red silk dress, the backless slinky kind. I'll be honest, I was a little worried, but your pictures don't do you justice. I knew he was buttering me up, but I told him I was relieved too. He looked clean-cut, with the self-assured affability of a guy picked to play the bachelor. His eyes seemed to be constantly appraising his surroundings, then accepting what he saw equably. Anxious, I hadn't been able to eat much dinner, and when I looked up at him, I got lightheaded and giggly. Still, I was glad for the wine. I offered him a glass, but he shook his head. Not much of a drinker, actually, he said. Should we skip the bar? We drove to the party. I kept up a nervous patter, asking him about growing up in Florida, medical school, the traffic on the way to my place. I was annoying myself with my half-drunk prattle, but he didn't seem to mind it, especially when I started asking about the website again. He talked in a cheerful, instructive tone, like he was explaining a complicated but exciting new scientific finding. I asked him if he'd ever gotten into a three-way. He said he had, once and relatively recently, with a couple he'd met at a bar in Hermosa Beach. I assumed he'd met them through the website, but he said the couple had just come up and sat next to him at the bar and started a conversation. The woman was stunning, so when they asked him if he'd be interested, he'd agreed. She was like the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen, he said, in a tone of awe that made me feel frumpy. My stomach grumbled. With two guys, though, I said, were you sharing the woman, or did you, like, give him a blowjob? He paused. Yeah, he said reluctantly. That part was weird. <laughs> I'll stop there. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. <laughs> Please hang out and drink the wine and eat uh, the cupcakes. And if you have questions, you're welcome to ask me in person. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.